Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, today on the Beeson Podcast, we have the great privilege of welcoming Eric Metaxas. Maybe you've heard his name. Eric is a writer of several books that have really made a tremendous impression in recent years, including a best-selling book, Amazing Grace, William Wilberforce, and the Heroic Campaign to End Slavery, one of the great figures in modern church history, William Wilberforce. And he's just come out with a brand new book that already is a New York Times bestseller, Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. We're going to talk about the Bonhoeffer book especially. But Eric, let me welcome you to the Beeson Podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I want to give our listeners just a little sense of who you are beyond what I've just said. I've said you're an author who's written on these two great figures, Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer. Uh, But you've done a lot of other things in life as a writer, as a speaker. Uh, Who are you, Eric? Uh, Well... That's the uh, that's the conundrum, and I know we don't have time, so I will direct people to my website, ericmetaxas.com. I think if they if they go to my website, they'll get some sense of who I am. The nutshell version is very hard. Let's see. I have been I, I worked for Chuck Colson, our mutual mm. friend, as a writer for Breakpoint. Uh, I was a writer for Veggie Tales, but more importantly, I've done voiceovers for Veggie Tales. That's the only thing that that most people would care about. So I'll mention that up front. Uh, I was a graduate of Yale. You know, I am a graduate of Yale University, English major, and knew I wanted to be a writer. And uh, I am a writer, but I've written mm. many different kinds of things. Mm. For our purposes, I'll I'll stick to the most recent books. I, um, as you mentioned, have written this biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And before that, as you mentioned, a biography of William Wilberforce. I really felt God called me to write these books. Um, and just before that, I've written a trilogy. I guess you can call it a trilogy. You can be pretentious and, and call <laughs> it a trilogy of three books of, uh, I would say, popular Christian apologetics. The first book is called Everything You Always Want to Know About God But We're Afraid to Ask. Uh, and I use humor uh, just a little bit. But when you're talking apologetics, a little bit goes a long way. I think that everyone has the big questions of, of what is what does the Bible say and what about this and what about that. And I think we ought to be able to have a really fun uh, conversation about those things. So in those books, I try to do that. And then finally, I will say I live in Manhattan in New York City with my wife and daughter, and I run a speaker series. That's where I last saw yeah. you. Uh, it's called Socrates in the City. Uh, it's it's really been we've been doing it for ten years for our tenth anniversary celebration. When you were there, we had as our speaker Chuck Colson, and we try to ask the big questions again mm. in, in a more of a sort of mm. a formal, uh, intellectually. Uh, pseudo-sophisticated kind of a setting. And so I, I, uh, I do a lot of things, which is why I always try to steer people to the website because I couldn't, I couldn't possibly Good. get them to explain. Give I, us I, the I website once that. more. It's just my name, which is ericmetaxas.com. I'll spell it. It's E-R-I-C-M-E-T-A-X-A-S.com. And I encourage all of you to go there and to find out more about this uh, very fascinating, creative guest we have today, Eric Metaxas. And we're going to jump right into Bonhoeffer. You've written a big book on Bonhoeffer. It has, uh, well, almost 600 pages to it in hardback. Is it coming out in paperback, by the way? It will come out eventually, probably uh, this fall, uh, in paperback. It has done well. I praise God for that. I cannot tell you... Uh, how surprised I am because when I was writing this, 
I just wanted to get it done. I just wanted to be accurate enough so that uh, people wouldn't uh, laugh at it. I just thought I want to tell the story and and have it, as I say, historically accurate, to tell his story for a new generation. And the response to it has been so overwhelming. Words cannot describe how mm, overwhelmed mm. I am at the overwhelming response and and what people say which of course thrills me to death as a writer is they they say that initially i was daunted by the size but i could not put it down now to an author to hear somebody say i couldn't put it down (laughs) and to hear lots of people say that number one i know the story of bonhoeffer is fascinating and if you just get into that story it is uh it's it's an amazing story so it's it's god's uh mercy that i was able to to get it done and to write it but the response really has just thrilled nobody more then uh, it's thrilled me. You know, I'll bear witness to this. Uh, 600 pages hardback book. Um, I picked it up, and it was a page-turner. Uh, of course, I know this story pretty well, but I learned things, new things, about Bonhoeffer from reading your book. And it's such an engagingly told, dramatic narrative of his life. What made you focus on him? Well, uh, when I wrote The Will Before, it's, it's, it's almost funny. I'll talk about this in chapel uh, tomorrow, but... I never intended to write a biography. I, I am not an historian. I am not uh, an academic. Um, but I was asked by a publisher to write the biography of Wilberforce, to write a biography of Wilberforce, when the movie Amazing Grace was coming out a few years ago. And I thought, you know, I've got to pray about this. It strikes me that uh, this is possible. Let me think about this. Let me pray about this. And I can say bluntly, I think the Lord uh, told me to go ahead. And so when the Lord tells me to do something, I figure it's going to be okay. And so I wrote that book and it was received very well. And I found that I was able to exercise my literary gifts in a way that I hadn't in many years. I wanted to be a fiction writer. When I graduated Yale, I had an ambition to write fiction. And and I I was really, um, uh, I kept being told that people enjoyed reading it, that they couldn't put that down. It's such an amazing story. And I thought, okay, well, uh, I'm glad that's done. I don't ever want to write another biography again. Thank you very much. I'll move on to another genre, if you don't mind. But people kept saying, you've got to write about, who will you write about next, Eric? Who's your next victim? Who's your next Mm -hmm. biography about? And finally, I thought, well, look, there is only one person who has ever captured my imagination the way Wilberforce did. The only person that I could think of that I would be willing to get into uh, writing a biography about is is Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, it's a very personal story for me because uh, I am German. My mother grew up in Germany during this period. Uh, my grandfather was killed in the war. He was a genuinely reluctant German soldier uh, would listen to the BBC with his ear pressed against the radio speaker uh, because you could get thrown into a concentration camp. I mean, there's so many Germans like that. You don't know their stories. But I knew the story of Bonhoeffer. And when I first heard it in the summer of 1988, I was captivated. I thought, wow, why haven't I heard this story before? Why doesn't the world know about this man who, because of his faith in Jesus, stood up to the Nazis, stood up to Hitler? Just fascinating. And I I, uh, so I kept hearing people uh, asking me that question, who will you write about next? And I thought, well, maybe Bonhoeffer. Let me think about that. Mm. So the same thing happened. I thought about it and prayed about it, and here we are. Now, the subtitle is interesting. I always love subtitles of books. They tell you often more than the title. And you have four words, and I want to ask you to say just a little bit about each one of them uh, before we finish the conversation because they're all interesting. Pastor, martyr, prophet, 
spy. Let's begin with pastor. Yeah. Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in pre-World War II Germany. Yeah, he was a pastor with a pastor's heart. Here was a man who had the gift as a theologian to be one of the great, great theologians. I mean, he was praised by uh, people like Karl Barth and, and uh, you know, people, re- really top theologians thought he was a great theologian. Uh, and even liberal theologians, Bonhoeffer was not really a liberal theologian, but he was praised and admired by liberal theologians. So here's a man who was admired theologically, academically, but who knew that he didn't just want to be an academic. He really felt a calling to the ministry. He wanted to be a pastor. He wanted to uh, preach uh, the Word of God. He wanted to, to uh, teach Sunday school. He wanted to uh, to counsel. I mean, he really had a desire to serve people as a pastor. And so it's interesting, right at the end of his life, you see him pastoring. He's pastoring in prisons. He's counseling with, with prisoners, with prison guards. He's uh, he's functioning as a pastor, writing pastoral letters to these seminarians uh, whom he taught. He, he really was a pastor. It's a beautiful thing to see uh, how seriously he took that. You know, Beeson Divinity School is a theological seminary, a school for training ministers and pastors particularly. When we began this school in 1988, we chose one book which everyone had to read, and it kind of became a centering focus for our school, shaped our identity. It was Bonhoeffer's Life Together, Mm. which came out of his underground seminary work at Finkenwalde. So talk a little bit about what he was doing to train other ministers in that very turbulent difficult time. Well, yeah, this is what's so so interesting. And obviously, uh, I hope folks will read the book for two reasons. Number one, because there is so much to this that you couldn't possibly uh, really explain it in a, in a half hour. There is so much to him. He is so fascinating. Uh, but another reason I hope people will read my book was because I think I wanted to lead people to Bonhoeffer himself. Because if people will read Life Together and the Cost of Discipleship and his other things, it will change the church in the United States. American mm. Christians will be different if they read Bonhoeffer. So that's sort of my goal. And uh, But just to answer your question about Finkenwalde, Bonhoeffer was deputized by the leaders of the Confessing Church, the good guys in the, in the struggle uh, for the soul of the German church, uh, to lead an illegal seminary. And um, Bonhoeffer was very young, but this is something he'd been preparing for for many years. And it's so interesting because he had a very healthy ecumenicism, and it, it, it rankled uh, some some sort of hidebound Lutherans at the time. But he really thought, I want to train these young men not just to be clerics, not just to be able to exegete Scripture. I want to train them to be disciples of Jesus Christ. Mm. I want to ch- train them to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So they need to be trained how to pray, mm. how to how to forgive, uh, how to confess, how to hear confession, how to take... Um, how to how to counsel and and love the brethren, uh, how to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now to teach seminarians that you're doing something that yeah. is really amazing, and that's what he was doing there. And um, it's it's a it's a beautiful thing. I think of that chapter in the book. It's really the golden era of Bonhoeffer, where you see him in full bloom, doing what what God called him to do. And of course, out of it comes that beautiful little book you just mentioned, Life Together, uh, which uh, in many ways helps us see what he was doing during that time. And also another very popular book, at least uh, among Christians in America, is The Cost of Discipleship, Nachfolge in German, uh, which also reflected his Bible study and his immersion in Scripture. That was very important to him, wasn't it? Oh, tremendous. And this is why it's it's sort of funny, because uh, many people on the hard left, I think, many many sort of agnostic Christians, quote-unquote, have thought of Bonhoeffer as a hero. And when you read 
what he wrote, when you read The Cost of Discipleship, when you read these other things, the picture you get is of somebody who is just a profound Christian, a man who took a Bible reading and prayer and intercessory prayer very, very seriously. He was very self-disciplined about that. And you get that when you read The Cost of Discipleship. You think this was this was a very serious Christian. This was not just a theologian uh, who was a little bit of a Christian, but this yeah. is somebody who was obedient to Jesus all the way to the bottom. And I think that uh, The Cost of Discipleship... Uh, it, it that's that's the clearest example of that. And anybody who reads that book, you, you can't mm. you can't get a, a false view of who Bonhoeffer is. This guy's serious. So some of our listeners are wondering what of Bonhoeffer could I read? I'd recommend start with Eric Metaxas Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy, and then of Bonhoeffer himself. Maybe those two books we've just mentioned, Life Together and The Cost of Discipleship, along with maybe the letters and papers from prison, which give you the end of his life uh, as he faces uh, an uncertain future and eventually, of course, death at the hands of the Nazis. Uh, on, on, on Bonhoeffer as a prophet, I want to go back to that because one of the things that struck me, and you bring this out in your book, that differentiated him from many others, even in the confessing church early on, was the fact that he took a stand on behalf of human beings and their dignity before God and was a strong, strong critic of the racist anti-Semitism. Many people in the Confessing Church you know, were concerned about what was happening to the church, yeah. and but Bonhoeffer had an insight there. What's, what's behind that? Well, he, he really was, and it's funny because I, when I, I, I have to say when I started writing this book, I didn't know what I was going to find. I didn't know... Uh, really much of anything except the rudiments of his life. Um, But what I found, uh, among other things, was that this man functioned in a way as a prophet. He he had a prophetic voice to the church, calling the church to be the church, to be be God's church, the church of Jesus Christ, um, in a way that almost no one did during this time. He seemed to be able to see things, and this is kind of the you know, the prophetic office, to be able to see things that others don't see, to see things that are eternal, that are true, um, but that we are somehow blinded to, whether in our flesh, in our brokenness, we don't see them. Bonhoeffer somehow saw these things, and he was crying out to the church to see what he saw. And of course, this is what the prophets do. They, they declare what is true, and of course, they are usually not taken very seriously. Sometimes they're killed uh, for saying what they say. Bonhoeffer was brave uh, and spoke out and said what he felt God was calling him to say, and uh, not just in the mystical sense of, of prophetic, but also uh, in, the, in the way that anybody who sees the truth clearly um, it's, is being prophetic. He saw things um, in some ways because of his family background, because of opportunities he'd had to travel. He had a perspective that others did not seem to have. And he was trying to bring that perspective and to try to wake others up to see what he saw. So he was, in, in, on many levels, a prophet. But when I started writing this book, I, I had no idea that I would discover this about him. I didn't intend to title the book, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. I didn't even think of him uh, as a prophet on, on any level. And again, when we say prophet, you know, people have to sort of read the book and, and understand what I mean by that. But I, I had no idea, but it became clearer and clearer as you see him interacting uh, with the forces around him, that that that's really what he was. I, sure. I I was amazed to see it myself. He had that role. Now talk about Bonhoeffer in America. He came to America twice. Yeah. 1930, I think it was, or 31, he came as a student at Union Theological yes, Seminary, yes. and then once again, right before the beginning of World War II. 
Talk about the impression that his experience in America made on him and his witness in Germany for the gospel. Oh, yeah. It, it, it changed his life. To, to cut to the chase, it changed his life. He comes to America, number one, uh, not really, you know, people say to study at Union. That's true and it's not true. I don't think he expected to get much out of Union, uh, theologically speaking, and frankly, he was not disappointed. He was, he was not theologically liberal. Uh, he spoke out against the theological liberalism in Germany, but he respected them academically and he learned from them. But when he comes to Union, he sees what for him is a very shallow, theological liberalism. He was not impressed. It was sort of social gospel, knee-jerk anti-fundamentalism. He really thought, well, what is this? I mean, okay, you're feeding the poor. That's good, but on what basis do you call that Christianity? On what basis do you call any of this Christianity? Uh, he didn't seem to get many answers, so he was not impressed. Yeah. One, one of his papers, or one of he wrote during that time, uh, was called Protestantism Without Reformation. Yeah. I mean, a fascinating description oh, no, of modern liberal American the, Protestantism. It, I mean, this guy, this is another reason I think the book is, has uh, struck uh, a nerve in so many places, because among other things, he is speaking to us today. It's shocking mm-hmm. how things are the same as they were 80 years ago. So he's writing about what he sees in the mainline Protestant uh, church in America in 1930. And it's as if he's speaking about us today. It's unbelievable. And so so anyway, he comes to New York and he's not impressed by what happens at Union theologically. He's not, uh, he's not really there for that. He's just there, I think, to experience America. And what happens to him that's significant, that's life-changing, is he visits Abyssinian Baptist Church, a church, African-American church in Harlem, largest church in America at the time, I think. And he sees there probably for the first time in his life, full-blown, full-gospel Christianity, the kind of thing that you were not going to see in the dispassionate Lutheran circles in which he'd been traveling. He sees um, African-Americans, who are obviously a suffering people, worshiping Jesus Christ with power, with fire. Uh, he, he's never seen anything quite like this. He's so moved by it, by the Negro spirituals, by the worship, um, that he vows to go back to this church every Sunday that he is in New York City. Now, this is uh, a blonde, bespectacled Berlin academic (laughs) going up to Harlem to worship in a church, and not just to worship, but to teach Sunday school. He gets involved in the life of the congregation. This experience utterly changes him. And when he goes back to Berlin in the summer of 1931, everyone notices he's different. This has changed him somehow. And it's he, he says that it's as if this was when he became a Christian. Now, if you read what he wrote before that, he was obviously a Christian before that, but somehow his heart was changed. Mm. He turned more toward God, less toward glorifying himself, uh, and less impressing people with what a theological genius he was, and more about serving Jesus Christ. Uh, really profound uh, moment in his life. And he had a friend, did African-American friend with whom he traveled, Frank Johnson, oh, I think was his uh, name? Uh, Frank Fisher, who Frank Fisher. was yeah. from Alabama. Alabama. Thank yes. you for reminding me. Frank <laughs> Fisher was from Alabama. Yes, an African-American fellow student at Union who invites Bonhoeffer up to this African-American church. And it really, it changed his life and it changed the course of so much, this visiting one church. Just mm. amazing. I think part, part of that is the fact that because he was exposed to racism here in this country, through this personal involvement in the church and Frank Fisher's friendship, he was able to be extraordinarily sensitive when he went back to Germany to the anti-Semitism, whereas other people were not quite so clear as I think it had an influence on him. Yes, I think that was that was part of the influence. There were other influences too. When you think that Bonhoeffer was uh, somebody who 
he couldn't be as nationalistic as other German Christians because he had been, uh, he had spent time in Barcelona, Spain. He had spent time, of course, now we're talking about in America. Uh, he, he traveled around Europe. He, he had a wonderful time. I write about in the book when he was 17 years old, he travels to Rome. Mm. He sees Christianity outside this parochial German Lutheran context. He sees the Church of Jesus Christ transcending national boundaries and uh, transcending racial boundaries. He sees uh, at uh, uh, St. John's Lateran, or I'm sorry, it was at St. Peter's in Rome, Palm Sunday um, in uh, 1924 or 23, I think it was, he sees men of every race, every color, worshiping, uh, you know, or celebrating the Mass. This is at St. Peter's in Rome. So he had a very different perspective of what Christianity is, mm-hmm. and he thought differently about nationality, about nationalism. Uh, and uh, his particular sensitivity to the Jewish situation, I mean, his sister, his twin sister, to whom he was extremely close, marries a man who's ethnically Jewish. Uh, his best friend in the ministry, uh, Franz Hildebrandt, uh, when he's... Uh, studying at Berlin University, ethnically Jewish. His family, they were uh, very well connected in academic circles. Of course, many, many Jewish friends. Yeah, he had a perspective that so few had. So yes, he was, mm-hmm. for many reasons, uh, including his visit uh, to Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York, very sensitive to racial issues in a way that almost no one was mm-hmm. at the time. Now, in 1939, he returned to New York again. He was invited because everyone saw what was happening in Europe. Here was a chance to, in a way, escape and he did go, uh, but he didn't stay very long. Talk yeah. about that. Well, this is the other thing. I remember in 1988 when I first heard about Bonhoeffer, this friend of mine says to me that, uh, yes, and he went to, to New York really to escape the Nazis, and, and uh, but he decided to go back, to go back to Germany into this uh, lion's den. And what happened really, again, as I wrote the book, doing the research on this, I was startled at how much I didn't know. I mean, I thought that he spent some time in America in 1939. You realize that he practically gets off the boat um, in early June, and he feels that he doesn't have the peace of God, that he's made a mistake. Now here, people have pulled all kinds of strings. Reinhold Niebuhr, of all people, mm. has pulled strings and thrown his weight around to get Bonhoeffer out of Germany to escape what seems to be uh, you know, a fate of death. And he nonetheless feels, God is calling me back. In 26 days, that's the title of the chapter in the book, 26 days, 26 days after he has set foot on American soil, he gets on another ship and goes back across the Atlantic, back to an absolutely uncertain fate. But he felt that God called him to stand with his people, with the with the Germans, with the German Christians in this time. He didn't know the details. He just knew that I'm, I'm going to be obedient to God. And that's one of the reasons he's such a hero. This man obeyed God. He just did what he thought God called him to do without worrying about it. Um, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, I think his life really is such a, it's a beautiful life. It's deeply inspiring, and it certainly has inspired me. Pastor, martyr, prophet. Okay, but spy? Yeah. Bonhoeffer? Spy? spy? Well, um, it's hard to believe, but when he, uh, he comes back to Germany, as we just described in July of 39, the war is coming. The question now is, what's he going to do? The reason he left in the first place, the reason he tried to escape to New York City, was to get away 
from Germany because he was going to be drafted, because he was going to have to pick up a rifle and fight in Hitler's war. Well, he knew he's not going to fight in Hitler's war. He was not a pacifist. Don't let anybody uh, tell you that he was a uh, a John Lennon, Yoko Ono-style pacifist. No, um, he was against war, as all Christians are against war. But he was specifically unwilling to fight in Hitler's war. So he's going back now to Germany, 1939. The war is coming. What's he going to do? Well, what he does is just so fascinating and strange and amazing. His brother-in-law was uh, a very uh, high-up figure in German military intelligence. German military intelligence at the time was the center of the conspiracy against Adolf Hitler. So imagine this. You've got military intelligence, Germany, 1939. This is the center of the conspiracy, which the Nazis, the top Nazis, have no clue uh, that these figures in the military are plotting against Hitler and plotting against them. Bonhoeffer is recruited by his brother-in-law to join officially this conspiracy. So he's hired to become a member of the Abwehr, the German military intelligence, during a time of war, to sort of give the appearance that he's working for the Third Reich to defend the fatherland in the time of war. But what he's actually doing now is he becomes a double agent. He is traveling around Europe, ostensibly working for German military intelligence, but in fact he is trying to make secret contact with uh, the Allied governments, notably the, the Churchill government, most notably the Churchill government, uh, to let them know there are Germans inside Germany working secretly to overthrow the Nazis. I mean, it's unbelievable. So yes, he becomes <laughs> a pastor, becomes a spy, officially involved in the conspiracy to assassinate the head of state, Adolf Hitler. The conspiracy that involved Stauffenberg and other military officers, he, he was implicated in that. At first denied involvement, but uh, tell us a little bit about his time in prison and what led to his eventual death. Yes, he was first arrested in 1943, but not for his involvement in the plot to kill Hitler, because that was not uncovered for another year uh, and a few months. He was arrested because he was involved in something called Unternehmensieben, which was a, a plan to uh, to spirit seven German Jews out of Germany and into neutral Switzerland to save their lives. Bonhoeffer got involved in that through the Abwehr. This was one of the things that was going on. And it's so funny to think that they really thought that, that there was some financial irregularity. So they thought he's trying to line his pockets. Mm. And so, of course, this was a crime. And you know, but, but they had no clue that he's involved in this conspiracy to kill Hitler. So he's arrested for that. Uh, he's at Tegel Military Prison. Um, he was really sure that he could convince the prosecutor to, to bring this to trial, that he would be exonerated, that he would get out. He'd been engaged by this time. He was sure that he would be able to have a married life. And um, he really was uh, convinced that uh, that this is, this is just a passing thing, that he's going to get out and everything will be fine, or that the uh, conspirators out there will kill Hitler and this war will be over and this nightmare will be over. But what happens is while he's still imprisoned a year after he's arrested, this plot uh, is exposed because the the the, Val the Operation Valkyrie, the Stauffenberg plot to mm. kill Hitler in his bunker in uh, uh, Wolfenschanz um, in uh, Eastern Prussia goes awry. Hitler's not killed, and suddenly the the conspiracy, which has bubbled along nicely, quietly for all these years, is exposed. Names uh, come up. One of the names is Bonhoeffer. So he's transferred from that point to the Gestapo prison, and uh, things change from that point on. And this leads him, of course to his martyr's death. In he was April at Buchenwald for a short while. Yes, for two months he's at Buchenwald, and then finally, right at the end, transferred to Flossenburg concentration camp. Tell us about his very last day and the statements that he made as he was preparing uh, to face eternity. It's, it's an extraordinary thing. The more you look at Bonhoeffer, and this is, as I say, I hadn't anticipated this. I thought maybe at the end of his life he sort of goes squishy on the theology. Maybe he 
uh, drifts away from the faith. And many people have said this. It's, it's almost hilarious because when you look at the facts, it's so clearly not true. But at the end of his life, he becomes more and more devout. You can just see his devotion to Jesus, uh, that he has the peace of God, that he's not afraid of death. Now, Christians are not supposed to be afraid of death. We're supposed to believe that Jesus has actually conquered death. But do we really believe that? Well, that's what Bonhoeffer challenges us, because he clearly believes this. He knows this is true, and we should know this is actually true. And so Bonhoeffer uh, goes to the gallows with the peace of God. He even says uh, he gets word to his friend George Bell, who's the Bishop of Chichester in England, uh, to, to say that, you know, this is uh, uh, the end, but for me, the beginning of life. He knows he's probably going to his death, but he knows that that really means that he's uh, leaving the Shadowlands, to quote uh, another Christian figure, C.S. Lewis, and he, he's entering uh, the glory, the glorious paradise that God has prepared. I mean, it's so beautiful to see somebody living that, believing that, knowing that that is true. Uh, I I was very moved writing that last part uh, of the book just to see that the, this is a man who, contrary to what some have thought, he was more of a Christian at the end, more of a pastor, mm. more of a disciple of Jesus Christ than ever. Just a, a mm. beautiful story. Eric Metaxas has been my guest today on the Beeson Podcast. We've been talking about his new biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. Eric, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for reminding us of Bonhoeffer and what he can mean for believing Christians and for our own culture today. What a great message is in this book. And so uh, if you if you want a book to read that will stir you, that will inspire you, that will challenge you, inform you, this is a book I would recommend. Eric Metaxas, Bonhoeffer, Pastor, Martyr, Prophet, Spy. Thank you for this conversation. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.